0: Welcome to Trailblazing with Corbett Price, where we present new and fresh perspectives that challenge how you approach change to solve some of the biggest challenges faced by business and government leaders today. Here's our host, Andy Corbett, to introduce our third episode in our series on embracing organisational change.
1: Hey everyone, Andy Corbett here, Managing Director of Corbett Price. Thank you for joining us again for our second podcast series on embracing organisational change. We hope you've been enjoying the series so far and found the insights shared by each of our guests valuable and useful. So far in our series, we've covered two important changes that public sector leaders must face now and into the future. They are number one, shifting mindsets, and number two, Optimizing Service Delivery for Customers Through an Operating Model Approach. And if you remember in our last episode, we spoke with Dan Bowes from Revenue New South Wales to talk about that subject of optimizing service delivery. And he kindly shared the improvements he has seen through this approach, what challenges they overcame through this process, and his best practice tips for others looking to do the same. Today, we're shifting gears into a crucial transformational change that organizations must address, embrace, and resolve. And that change is realizing diversity, equity, and inclusion aspirations. One of the four priority areas set out in Katie Gallagher's APS reform agenda last year was for the APS to be a model employer. And two outcomes set against this priority were that the APS sets the standard for equity, inclusion and diversity, and also sets the standard for First Nations employment and cultural competency. The Australian Public Service Commission's 2022 Diversity and Inclusion Report found that employees from diversity groups had a higher intention to leave their agency or had an increased rate of separation. And in the global gender gap reports released from the World Economic Forum in 2022, Australia ranked only 43rd for gender equality internationally. So how do we address these gaps and create inclusive workplaces where all employees are equal, valued, and importantly, feel safe to contribute and be their authentic selves? Here to help us understand how we can address this critical transformative change is Julie Etchels. Julie is the Chief Human Resources Officer for the Department of Child Safety, Seniors and Disability Services. Julie has 20 years of experience serving the public, working for the Queensland Government. And as Chief Human Resources Officer, out lesbian and person with a disability, Julie is passionate about creating inclusive workplaces where everyone feels valued, their differences are recognized, and they are seen as a positive contributor to the organization and the quality of work that they do. Thank you so much for joining our podcast today, Julie.
0: Thank you, Andy. Thank you for the invitation to be a part of this. What a great topic.
1: All right, well, let's get into it then, shall we? So the first area that I would, uh, I think we should, jump into um, uh, within this episode is the, the idea of psychological safety mm-hmm. and, and how it can really be the starting point for building a positive and a strong culture. And we covered aspects of this in our previous series uh, where we touched on the four stages of psychological safety. Uh, and just as a reminder to the audience, they are inclusion safety, which is all about individuals feeling accepted and included in the group. And then there's this idea of learner safety, where people can ask questions without the fear of embarrassment of punishments if they make any mistakes. Uh, and we've got this idea of contributor safety, which where people feel safe to use learnings to then make a difference. And then finally, the fourth one is the challenger safety, where people feel safe to challenge the status quo. So I really wanted to understand, what are your thoughts on this? Do you think psychological safety is the foundation for creating an inclusive workplace environment?
0: Uh, That's a a big question, and and I'm sure you'd get lots of different answers to this one. Um, As a woman, I would have to say that actually physical safety would probably be the primary one Um, and as an out woman with a disability and over the age of 50 it becomes even more important to have your physical safety um, and know that you can be physically safe undertaking your role and duty and, and responsibilities and of course to be able to get to work um, you have to feel psychologically safe as well once once you're um, in that mode to get dressed, get out the door and get to work. So I would say the two are hand in hand. Obviously, you can't do one without the other unless you're working remotely in a little locked away cupboard somewhere. Um, so I would um, definitely say that both are important because what we think is what we do as well.
1: Oh, for okay, that's great. So, do you, would you could you just talk us through a bit more about the physical
0: and yeah. um,
1: safety side of things? Yeah,
0: sure, sure. Um, certainly. Um, you know, in my younger years. Uh, in, in being um, a member of the public sector here in Queensland, you know, I, I was an out woman and I knew that at times I was going to come across people who didn't respect who I was and felt threatened by that and would confront me about that. I certainly experienced that both from um, staff internally and externally, um, folk, and in my own private life. So, that's something that you can't unknow once you've experienced homophobia or you've experienced something that threatens your personal safety, whether that's because you're a woman or because you're on your own or whatever um, has occurred. Once that's happened, it's really hard to unlearn that. And so it does stick and it becomes part of this psyche and becomes part of your thinking. So you do start to, for a woman, you know, I come to work and I, I, I assess my safety. I think about, Am I going to be my full self at work? Can I be my full self at work? Am I providing an environment, a work environment where everyone who works for me, with me, alongside me um, feels comfortable to be who they are at work? And part of that is about that physical safety. So if you've got a disability or you've experienced homophobia or racial slurs or discrimination, and you feel that your physical safety is threatened, you'll act accordingly and you will no longer be 100% your full self because your body will go into that mode of protection, whichever your mode is, whether it's fight, flight, freeze or appease. Um, And often at work, particularly in government, you'd see the appease approach where people will quietly think what they think and may not necessarily speak out. So, you know, when you talked before about learner safety and challenge safety, um, if you've had lived experience of something that threatens your physical safety, it's hard to then fully 100% feel that you can um, 100% contribute from a learner and and challenge perspective.
1: Absolutely. So, yeah, so hearing you loud and clear that physical safety it goes hand in hand with psychological safety both of which are the foundations for an inclusive workplace environment and what's the, what would you say is the role of leadership in in enabling that type of environment to be in place
0: it's a significant responsibility and privilege so you know being a leader is a privilege and an honor and if you have have that privilege and that honor then also comes with that great responsibility. So, you know, that it's that notion of um, uh, model the way, lead the way, and ensure that you're doing that in a way that is um, equitable and gives access to all. So um, I think that for me as a leader, it's really um, significant that I, one, turn up and be 100% who I am and am uh, authentically leading the way that I lead. I can't lead how you lead or somebody else leads. Um, And we've got enough of you and others, so I'll just lead the way that I lead. And by doing that, I create an authorizing environment for others to know that it's okay for them to be who they are. In fact, I need them to be who they are. And if I can um, demonstrate that through my actions, my words, the environment I create, the team I engage, and how I create a sense of team amongst other teams, if I model that consistently and show that that is just part of my values and I'm leading in true alignment to that, that is what people will see and experience as authentic and they will feel safer that they can p- fully participate and they'll have equal access to, to the opportunities and to raise their concerns and to um, you know, ask for the development they want, whatever it may be.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Okay, that's great. Thank you. And I've just been looking through some statistics on on this idea of of diversity groups within the Australian Public Service Commission's 2022 diversity and inclusion report. And when I'm looking at those stats, they're quite sobering um, from the perspective that employees from diversity groups have higher intention to leave their position. And on top of that, employees with disabilities are reportedly separating from their agency at a much higher rate than employees without a disability. So question for you, Julie, is how how do you think we can make our workplaces more inclusive for everyone, especially the, those from those particular diversity groups?
0: Yeah, it's a, it's a, a sad reality, isn't it, the statistics um, indicating that's certainly sobering but also you know is is something that we should as leaders sit up and take notice of and and see it as the opportunity that it is once we know it we need to do something with it so my focus is on the now what so I know it now what what am I going to do about it Um, and for me um, having employees with disabilities um, leaving at higher rates shows that I've you know, there's an issue. So if I'm taking that as, you know, all public sector, um, because our own agency rates are a little bit different, but taking that as as part of the public sector that I'm a a leader in, um, it means that there's an opportunity for me to do something different. And and one of the key things I think in terms of addressing um, uh, where there is disadvantage and a higher group um, or a higher um, separation rate, I need to have a look at what's going on there. I can only look at that from my perspective unless I stop, pause, create a space and a seat at the table for people that have other lived experiences to come and inform why are they leaving, what's happening, do they feel safe enough to tell me why they're leaving and what's happening. And then what am I going to do with that information and how, what do I say to them about what I'm going to do with that information so they feel safe to be able to participate in the conversation, but also contribute to what can we do about it going forward to create a safe space and create um, an a, a employment opportunity across the public sector, regardless of where you are, um, that um, encourages People with disability to participate fully in the workforce and be um, valued and um, feel valued as a, a contributing member of the staff. So the you know the notion of um, workplaces being more inclusive for everyone kind of had this catchphrase that we use in our agency, um, which is about nothing nothing about us without us. So. If you're talking about a cohort of people and you look around the boardroom table and you see actually you can't see that face represented in the boardroom, there's a problem. Mm. <laughs> so nothing about us without us is an important catch cry because it's talking about um, you know, consumer informed Um, policies and practices and decisions and working environments. So having having participants who have that lived experience, then speaking to and informing those policies and those decisions and those physical environments is a significant key contributing factor both to why they might leave but also why they might stay. So then the opportunity is there for us all regardless um, to do something with that. Um, and to think about, you know, that multiple factor of, of disadvantage or advantage, when you look around that boardroom, have you got it covered with a balance?
1: Are mm. the voices
0: represented? And are they then represented in a way that you would use that information to inform your corrective solutions going forward?
1: Absolutely. And so, yeah, we're talking about the boardroom level there. Yeah. And, and then I'm thinking, at the, at the other other levels in the organisation as well. I mean, how important is it to promote diversity inclusion at, at all levels across the across the organisation?
0: Yeah, absolutely, and and good call out. Um, I I, I use the term boardroom. I mean, any room yeah. that I'm at, any table that I'm at, where a decisions yeah. being made. So, um, in fact, you know, part of my leadership is is um, you know, that sort of notion of servitude. So I ensure that I have different. Representation in my leadership team, and um, we make decisions um, primarily from a values base and a principle base within the legislation, of course. Um, but we—that is—that is my board, regardless of levels and classifications and whatnot. Um, but in terms of going back to your question about all levels of employment and how important uh, is that notion of safety and and um, inclusion, it's it's paramount. Like I started at the front line. I started as a wee baby family service officer um, back in the department, back in the nineties. And and here I am, what, 24 years later, the chief human resource officer. So you can be damn sure that I'm gonna use those experiences over the years to inform how do I create that space now that a a younger baby me would feel safe enough to come and join and feel valued and, and to feel that it's okay to be me. And I didn't feel that when I joined. I didn't feel that at all for many, many years. And it's only been in more recent time that I've taken the courage to be more out at work and be authentic about who I am um, and um, the challenges that I face because it, it's, it's certainly been um, shared with me when I've had staff who've um, contacted me after I've presented at a, a staff meeting or a work group or a function or something. And I've turned up and I've got a t shirt and I've got some tattoos and I've got some piercings and I've, you know, got funky hair and you know, I turn up being me. And I've had young staff email me, you know, following that saying, Thank you so much for just coming and being you because you turning up showed me that actually I could be you one day. And I thought, Wow, that's so powerful. I hadn't even really thought about it. I'd just run from one place to another and I forgot to put my jacket on. I've turned up with the director general to a group and you know, this young woman seen me and Just said wow you know i thought because i had tattoos and so forth i wouldn't be able to be a leader in our department when in fact i can be out and i can you know show that with my art on my sleeves and on my body and and still be a leader and that i'll be valued for that so it really struck me the importance of um you know showing that we all have something to offer and as a leader i need to do that as authentically as i can so that other staff can see that actually that can be them. You know, and we're really fortunate our Director General was was a frontline Child Safety Officer as well. Um, you know, and now she's the Director General and um, you we know, have many staff that are in the executive um, and in leadership positions around our um, organization across the state who have various lived experiences. Um, and the more I can create um, a, a work, workforce um, value base that encourages them to be them and to look out for other folk to demonstrate that this is a safe inclusive workplace the better we can affect it at all levels so we promote opportunities we we promote opportunities we ensure that there's you know pride flags around that there's Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander flags we celebrate multicultural days we do all of those things but it's the day-to-day things and that you know going back to that ethos of nothing about us without us um, that really sets the stage for ensuring people feel valued and included everywhere.
1: And That's a great ethos to have. Nothing about us without, without us. That's that's uh, mm-hmm. that's, uh, that's brilliant, Julie. So, and, and I guess the, your answer there, and how, and, and the way you described it, sort of it sort of outlines that progress is being made. Would would you say progress is being made? And and my second question, in it, in that's related to that, is how would you actually measure progress in in a tangible way?
0: Yeah, yeah, it's a million dollar question, isn't it? Um, Are we making progress? Yes. You know, the the sheer fact that I'm here, the Chief Human Resource Officer, I'm a woman, over 50, out lesbian, person with a disability, and I'm here in, you know, the Chief Human Resource Officer role, which is the only one of its role in in my department um, for the state. Um, And I started, you know, in a very different level. Um, So is progress being made? Yes. Um, Are we there yet? No. (laughs) Will we ever be there fully? I don't think so. Um, You know, maybe the younger generations coming through who are, you know, living their best lives and living as themselves, maybe they will bring that change. Um, I don't know that I'll see it 100%, 100% of the time in my lifetime. I hope I do. Um, yeah. but I don't I don't I think there's always something to strive for. there's always something there isn't there that that we need to think about and and that gives us pause to consider so um, what how would we measure it? Um, uh, look some of the things we do you know are the statistical type things so you referenced some stats before in terms of across the public sector. Um, Certainly we have a working for Queensland survey that we use, it goes across all Queensland public sector, asks a range of questions. And um, with the recent changes that we've had in our Public Sector Act, um, we have a specific diversity and inclusion and equity Um, section in that legislation, we've now adapted the questions in our Working for Queensland survey that every employee has the opportunity to answer um, that is specifically asking about their diversity status. Last year, the diversity status um, for my department showed a higher rate than if I were to pull a HR report um, than those that would identify in my HR report, which is based on their own employee data. Um, So the fact that people feel safer in a much broader, more anonymous survey to fully identify and haven't necessarily updated their own um, employee profile in my department shows there's a gap and there's something there. Some of it is just data and people think uh, I can't be bothered going back in and filling that out but some of it is because they don't feel um, to do so. So, the discrepancy between those two gives me pause and makes me think I've got more work to do. Um, and as a leadership team, I know that um, our agency is very committed to that. So, we'll continue to look at that and any sort of gap between more anonymous data and our current data um, because I think that's something for us to, to take as a sign. The other part is, as I said before, looking around any decision making table and seeing the difference. Um, That we have um, in our consumer group being represented in our decision makers. So, you know, having diversity visible, um, having language that shows that we are more considered in terms of inclusion. Um, So, you know, we're we're more conscious of the need to use inclusive language and inclusive practices, and that our own lived experience is ours, and we can't speak for everyone. So, how do we ensure we get as many varying views around the table to inform our policies and inform our office designs, ensure that they're um, accessible for every ability and disability, to ensure that people of different um, cultural backgrounds um, have what they need to be able to turn up and be at work and feel included at work, whether that's about prayer rooms, whether it's about safe spaces, whether it's about they see themselves in other leaders um, so they know that this is an a organisation that values who they are and their, their culture and, um, all their um all their contributing factors
1: and and you know so it's, it's obviously it's great to know that obviously this progress is being made some great examples that you just mentioned there the the big question was are you know are we are we there yet and, and we and you said before we, we might not we're not and there's still still a way to go um where would where do you think are the biggest gaps right now if you would sort of uh, single out a few a yeah. few gaps would say were relatively higher or bigger, should I say, than others. Um, what what would those gaps be?
0: Yeah, I mean, I can only speak from the Queensland context in that yeah. sense. Um, but if I think about you know um, what I see and read and and experience as a member of you know this beautiful place that we live in, um, I I would think that the biggest challenges continue to be around. Obviously, gender continues to be an issue and the data shows that. Um, in my department, that's very different because we are a, um, definitely a, a female-oriented department, so we have a really strong um, presence at all levels for women in leadership. Um, so we're we're really strong in that space, um, but we're underrepresented um, and not where we want to be because we've set our own targets higher than um, the, the bottom line sort of levels. We've been aspirational um so we've still got space to go in terms of people with disability, people who identify as part of the queer community. Um, when people will start to feel safer to be able to identify and to, um, you know, um, feel that they can be their full selves and participate fully, then I think, you know, we'll we'll see some shift in that data. So for for me, I think people with a disability are largely underrepresented in the workforce. I think it continues to be um, shown in all statistics um, that um, people with a disability are leaving at higher rates. Um, they find it harder to get entry in the first place. Um, mm. So you know, there's some work that we've all got to do in that space. Um, gender was getting better across the public sector is is still an area that we need to address. And for people who are part of the queer community, um, for them to start to feel um, safe and to be able to identify will then start to get a true representation in data. I'm not, I'm not um, at all thinking that we're close to having full identity represented in data. So the data would suggest that that's an issue and that we need to address it, but I'm not sure that we've got full representation in the data because people are not yet um, yeah. clicking those identifiers. And, you know, the fact that we're still talking about what's the right identifiers, you know, think about data sets. We haven't got a unified data set that we use everywhere and say this is the bare minimum. You know, if you think about people with differing gender identity, um, we haven't got um, a data set that we use unanimously that is is a must. So, you know, there's some work there for us to do to get – True accuracy in the data in the first instance, um, but you know, those people that have got that intersectionality of, of multiple factors of disadvantage, um, you know, clearly that's going to be a, a group that we need to do a lot more work to bring about um, inclusion in the workplace so they can fully participate.
1: That's that's great, and you and you mentioned intersectionality just then, um, and yeah. so and that brings me on to my next question actually. So. The, the Diversity Council of Australia, they've put together a framework for intersectional yeah. organisational action, and in that, it stresses the importance of taking an intersectional approach when designing, delivering, and evaluating equity, diversity, inclusion workplace initiatives. For those people who may not know what intersectionality means, please, please could you just talk through, um, you know, what, from your perspective, how you would define intersectionality, and, and then provide an example of how to take an intersectional approach.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, I'll, I'll do my best, um, but I'm sure there are far more academic people that can, can you know, would love to speak to this. But for me, intersectionality is is really those multiple factors of advantage and disadvantage um, that creates modes of um, discrimination or privilege. So, you know, if you think about the, the boardroom analogy you no know, decision-making table it's the kitchen table at home or somewhere else have you got full participation and full representation that's informing that because that's that's the intersectional approach to it so if if you if you have um a system that for example uh it ha- has largely got um, um white middle-aged men with no disability who speak English at home and speak English um, and their parents were English and that's who's making all the decisions and you've got 10 of those then you've got a um, intersectionality of privilege at the table and so all those decisions are going to be formed from that position. If we want to address that then we need to have a look at how do we create a space at the table um, for people to fully participate? And, um, you know, I, I presented at Ida Hobbit last year and and talked about um, some of the basic ways we can do that, you know, that it, it doesn't require loads of money. It doesn't require loads of, um, you know, monumental strategies and so, so on and so forth, you know, just that instant intersectionality is, is, you know, it's there, it's real. Um, and if we accept that, then again, what do we agree to do about it? You know, if we increase the percentage of staff and leaders and decision, decision makers in our agencies and in our companies who um, have multiples of disadvantage um, and represent disadvantage, then our decisions and our processes will be far better informed and will create that equity um, across that space. So how do we do that given most of the people that you know might be those um, white middle-aged men who speak English and have no other disadvantage sitting at the table, how do we then start to ensure those other voices are present? Every one of them can do that, you know by turning up and being open to change and recognising and calling the privilege around the table, you know, making sure the conversation's inclusive, ensuring that they create a space at the table for those other voices, you know, to, to lead with kindness and care and seek out those other voices um, and consider their own bias um, and call it. Name it, um, and then um, you know encourage people to turn up and be themselves. And you know, I said I presented at Ida Hobbit last year, and and I you know spoke about these sort of seven key factors. And for me, it was you know looking at really what are some real practical tips that we can all do that don't require money. Um, what are some things that we can do? And so I spoke about these you know seven practical tips that we could all start today um, if we embrace diversity and and you know. Really wanted to drive that change and be a part of that change for an inclusive workspace for everyone. Um, and, you know, like I am so proud to be part of the public service in Queensland because the folks that the very smart folk, much smarter than me, that were there, then took some of that and created it into a resource that got shared all around the public sector um, and it's available to the broader public on the, um, the um, public sector. Web page If you Google inclusion and diversity in Queensland government, seven practical tips that will come up there for you. And these are things that every person at every level can do that will make a difference.
1: That's great. We we can add that uh, reference to the uh, to the the podcast notes as well on the website. Just so um, and we'll add that link in so people can download that for further information. And, and you're right, I don't think it takes huge amounts of money to do this sort of thing. I think just even just listening to your employees and um, empathizing with them and through discussions and understanding the different experiences from their perspective to, to really sort of put yourselves in the shoes and then and, and design approaches that actually factor, factor in those, uh, those differences in the way that they see things and, the, and their view of the world. Uh, and that doesn't require a huge program of work.
0: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And if we go back to that, you know, that messaging around, you know, nothing about us without us, like ensuring that you've got that representation and even if they're not formally in leadership positions, how do you ensure those voices inform your decision making so that you do create a more inclusive workplace? It'll be so far richer for it. You know, I think about um, the department that I work for and the, you know, many, many employment opportunities we have and, you know, I welcome everyone to, you know, come check out our webpage and have a look at the jobs we've got available because we really want to represent the communities that we're here to serve and we're not there yet. So there's many opportunities that we have and, you know, we're working really hard to ensure that we make diversity and inclusion visible to anyone externally to our agency because. We need the multitudes of other people. You know, we're looking to improve that intersectionality of disadvantage in our work group because that is the very communities that we serve around Queensland, um, you know, and as a public servant, that's that's my key, that's why I'm here, that's my gig. Yeah. You know, it is about serving the, the public and I only represent a part of the public. If I'm looking at, um, you know, the services we provide, then, you know, we've got a better represent that. Yeah,
1: that's great. Thank you, Julie. And uh, unfortunately, we are coming to the end of this episode. But before we before we close it out, I just wondered, do you have any further advice or best practices for how everyone can do their parts in creating and promoting a more inclusive workplace?
0: Uh, thank you for that opportunity. I would say the... Oh, First, first part is accepting that it exists. Accepting that is the reality and it may not be the individual's lived experience themselves, but it is real and it does exist. And focus on the now what. Once you accept that, now what? Now what are you gonna do about it? And you know, things like those seven practical tips are a really easy way to to make a commitment, you know to add it to your agenda as a standing agenda item, to force yourself to pay attention to it until it becomes habit and create new habits by making it intentional um, and drawing attention to it. You now, and that does require all of us, including myself, even with, with all of my um, my different um, identities, you know, the, that notion of, um, checking my own privilege at the table because you know I, am, I earn a very, very comfortable income that gives me a certain level of privilege. How do I check my own privilege at the table and ensure that other voices are heard and inform all our decisions going forward? So accept it, name it, then ask yourself, what are you gonna do about it? Look at something that's simple that you can all do, add it to your agenda practice it, make it intentional and until it becomes habit.
1: Yeah, absolutely, that's brilliant Julie, thank you and and I guess obviously also creating space for culture, uh, ensuring our decisions are also culturally informed, considered and inclusive is, is critical as we walk this path of truth healing and reconciliation. Uh, So look, Julie, thanks once again for joining us today on the podcast. I know our listeners will have learned an awful lot from that, I certainly did. So I really appreciate your time today and, uh, and appreciate you coming in. Thanks for all your insights and all the answers that you provided there around what is such a critical transformative change of realizing diversity, equity and inclusion aspirations.
0: Thanks, Andy. Thanks for the opportunity. I appreciate it.
1: We hope you enjoyed listening to Julie today and found her insights and approaches valuable. A full transcript of this episode is available to download from our website, which is www.corbettprice.com.au forward slash podcast. That's www.corbettprice.com.au forward slash podcast. Please tune in next week as we talk with Tina McAllister, who is the Acting Director, People and Culture, for the Department of Agriculture and Fisheries within the Queensland Government. We'll be talking to Tina on our fourth transformational change of playing the new talent game, Attraction, Retention and Employee Attrition. Thanks for listening, everyone, and goodbye.